Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive. We thank you for the air we breathe, the food you give us, the shelter you give us, none of which we deserve, but you've given us life. And we ask that you help us appreciate life itself and any good things that we have that we know are from you. Father, help us not take any of these things for granted. Father, please also bless those in our congregation that are struggling with health issues, illnesses, handicaps, things that even keep them away from attending your church. We ask that you encourage them, lift them up, and help them remember the angels are watching and observing their faith every single day. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man, to take the place of mankind on the cross, so that every man can choose to believe in him for eternal life and have their sins wiped away. We thank you for this grace and mercy, Father, and this opportunity to learn your word. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Why are the Apostles so encouraging? Part 6. So let's start this way tonight. Thank God for what you don't have. Thank God for what you don't have. When's the last time you did that? Some of us wish, and it usually comes from our flesh, that we had certain things, certain strengths, certain abilities, wealth, uh, whatever it is. And those very things might actually be stumbling blocks to us if we had them. They might be stumbling blocks that prevent us from trusting in God or turning to God in humility. So, you know, we've heard the expression, be careful what you ask for, right? Or be careful what you wish for. Maybe instead we should, you know, turn the tables because everything is opposite here. Everything's upside down and backwards, right? Maybe we should turn the tables and thank God for what we don't have. These things that we could have, they might encourage us to trust in ourselves. could be the very worst thing for us, if you think about it. Like the rich man who kept trusting in his riches instead of selling them and following Christ. It was a handicap to him. So again, thank God for what you don't have. This is along the same lines as thanking God for our weaknesses, as Paul did. Because then, when God uses us for good, when God uses us to actually perform something good, in spite of our weaknesses, He has to get all the glory. We can't take any credit. And that's when it's a truly wonderful, God-given thing. Like the apostles, look at all the good that God produced through the apostles who were humble enough to rely on Him, right, and follow Him and trust the Spirit. All the good they did, and what were they? Who were they? What skill or background did they have that was advantageous to what they did? And because we can say they had almost nothing in their fleshly strengths, we have to say all the glory went to God. And the apostles rejoiced in that. You know, the angels rejoiced because they see God using these nobodies to do these wonderful things and that's what it's all about that's why we're here 
So we shouldn't think like the world, building our esteem on strengths of the flesh. It's very easy. We've got to be on, on guard for that, to be careful that our esteem and our soul and our heart even is not based on our strengths, our fleshly strengths, our intelligence, whatever it might be, because it's very easy to fall into that because we all grew up with it. In some way, shape, or form, we all grew up relying on our strengths for our esteem, whatever those strengths are. So just like we all have a little religion in us, probably to the day we die, we all have a little bit of this in us too, relying on our fleshly strengths for our esteem and our confidence. So the journey is dropping those things by the wayside and turning to Christ for our confidence in everything as much as possible. But as we've been seeing, everything's backwards and upside down. The things that the world esteems the most are often the same things that are potential handicaps in the spiritual life, such as intellect, athleticism, beauty, strength or power, business acumen, shrewdness, and we could go on and on and on with physical fleshly strengths. But these things can be handicaps, and again, we can thank God for the things we don't have. Guess what? If you, if you could handle a certain strength given to you, from birth even, you'd probably have it as a blessing. So maybe the reason you don't have it is because you actually can't handle that thing without it dragging you down and dragging you away from God. So thank God for your weaknesses and thank God for the things that you don't have. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 25 through 31. And because the original 12 apostles didn't have much the world could esteem in them, their acts of faith brought great glory to God, as he was clearly the one who changed them and gave them power. Let me say that again. Because the original 12 apostles didn't have that much that the world could esteem in them, their acts of faith brought great glory to God. And he was clearly the one that changed them and gave them the power. That's what the people watching had to conclude. Because they were just a bunch of fishermen. And they had to give all the glory to God. So maybe that's why Jesus chose them and why we should all be very encouraged. Turn again to 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Let's read this passage in context again. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're way beyond our thoughts and way beyond our ways. And this passage speaks to that also. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man can boast before God. I think of some people, before we continue on here, that... I meet some Christians, you know, that, that have his light shining out of them, you know, and have his peace and have his joy. And there are people that 
might be uh, very simple people living simple lives, maybe in poverty even. They, they don't have anything worldly to esteem, and they have this joy and light shining out of them. And it's, it's just awesome to see. Like, I see this verse in those types of people. They have nothing earthly they can hang on, hang on to, boast in, hang the hat on. And here they are. They're, they're, they're these type of people that God has chosen to actually shame the wise, to shame the rich who boast in their riches. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And when you see the two cross paths, have you ever seen the two cross paths where you get a faithful, simple Christian that really doesn't have much in life, cross paths with maybe an intelligent, rich person, and you see them clash, and, and the light of the Christian just shines over this supposed esteem that the other person is carrying, you know? And that's what God's doing and loves to do to show it's all him. It's all his work. So again, rejoice in what you don't have. Uh, that's how we don't have to boast. We don't have anything in the way, like in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we saw this on Sunday on the board regarding let him who boasts. The contrast between humility and arrogance is easy to identify. One only need ask who they are boasting in. It's really that simple. Who are you boasting in? And don't only think of a verbal boasting. Okay, think of boasting in your soul, in your heart. Who are you boasting in? Who are you giving the credit to? Maybe I should say how much credit you're giving to God and how much you're giving to yourself. Because we all have a problem in that area. So the contrast, though, it is easy to recognize. All you have to do is see who a person is boasting in. If credit is funneled away from the Lord God the giver of all good things, then it's arrogance. In the big picture, the humble admit they cannot meet God's righteous standards on their own. The arrogant don't admit that. They won't admit that, even if they're taught that or told that. Some may even verbalize it, but the arrogant hold on to their own righteousness in their heart. They don't realize and admit that they need God's righteousness, that they can't meet his standards on their own. So they hold on to their own righteousness in their heart. We've been talking about heart issues over and over, right? That's what God is looking at all the time, and that's why we constantly should examine our hearts before him, because that's what really matters. We're all going to fail to the day we die. But instead of looking at the overt things like we tend to do, we should always be looking at, our heart, right? And work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And be like, you know, what, what is my heart in this matter? What, who am I giving the credit to right now or about boasting in about this matter, this part of my life? And, you know, sometimes you're going to get a crummy answer and you're going to repent and go right back to him because he's gracious and get right back on the, on the horse, right? So, again, regarding let him who boasts... This came up on Sunday as well. 
on the supreme judicial scale of God, righteousness is the only thing with any mass to it. Man is incapable of bestowing righteousness to himself. It's a gift from God, both through imputation at salvation and impartation during sanctification. In all cases, God adds righteousness to his own scales on man's behalf. God adds righteousness to his own scales on man's behalf or for man's benefit. So gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. He gets all the glory. Turn again to Proverbs 16, verse 8. God adds righteousness to his own scales on man's behalf. It all belongs to God. The scales belong to God. The, the weights that he puts on the scales for you belong to God. It's done on, on behalf of your name by grace, but none of it belongs to you. Proverbs 16.8 Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. In other words, they all belong to God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of the Lord, the creator of the universe. And so the apostles were wonderful examples of men who turned away from themselves and turned to the Lord for righteousness. They denied themselves. They turned away from their own righteousness. They admitted they couldn't do it. And when the Lord said, follow me, they followed him. They turned to Christ for his righteousness. So there's a wonderful example of that through them. They were humble men. And they were also men of humble circumstances, which was a benefit to them. And of course, Jesus came for all of us, including the least of us. On the board, regarding the apostles, we may each be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Each one of them were justified, made righteous by grace through faith, not as a result of intellect or any works of their own. We saw that in Romans 3, 21 through 31, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, again, turn to Romans 3, verse 21. These passages are so wonderful in context that um, the Spirit you know, kept them in here for tonight's lesson, even though we read through them on Sunday. You know, some of these passages you can't get enough of in context, and they're so sweet to be read together in context. So, again, the point on the board, we may be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Each one of them were justified or made righteous by grace through faith, not as a result of intellect or any works of, of their own or any of their own strengths. Um, and, and we have that to follow, that example to follow. Even the great Abraham, all right, which he was a great believer, but some Jews put him on a pedestal. And even he was justified by God's grace, not by 
the wonderful works that he did in gratitude. So we see that as we end this passage in, in Romans 4. But look at Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this is just a wonderful passage to even share with friends that are confused about salvation in context. And what's it about in verse 25 and 26? It's about his righteousness. It's about his righteousness being worthy, being um, pure. And it's that very righteousness that we need and we receive when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul mentions Abraham. And how even a faithful man like Abraham could not boast before God. Look at Romans 4.1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That was Abraham. Abraham believed in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. He did not receive God's righteousness because of his works. So even he could not boast before God. And remember, Abraham was made righteous by God before God made him a Jew. Before God made him a new race. Abraham was already saved by faith. So as a Gentile, he believed and was saved. And that's quite a reminder for the Jewish people. The Jews can't even boast in their Jewishness which is easy to do for them. Because even Abraham wasn't a Jew when he was justified by God. So you'll see that if you continue to read on in Romans 4 on your own time. But righteousness was always and is only a gift from the grace of God. That's how it always was and always will be. That's the only way to get perfect, pure righteousness in any man is by the grace of God. Because we're all born sinners. So on the board, righteousness 
credited to one's account. As was the case with Abraham in Romans 4.3, God gives grace, righteousness, to the humble who are those who believe in him. You don't have to possess natural abilities to earn favor with God. And the apostles proved this for us. So now let's step, step back again and remember the context of Jesus' ministry. The Lord came with a simple and pure purpose, and the apostles were called to carry that torch, as we are today. But on the board, Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his overarching purpose, right? To seek and to save that which was lost. So simply stated, Jesus came to spread the good news about salvation. You're like, I already knew that. That's awesome. But the point is, as simple as that is, that's kind of the whole point. It's obvious, it's, it's obvious but that is something that's key is us accepting this simple truth and saying, oh, all right, so maybe I shouldn't be complicating it like the way I do in my soul or in my activities even. Maybe, I should, maybe I'm here just to seek and save the lost, like he was, like the apostles carried the torch to do. It's pretty wonderful that it is that simple. And if the Lord came for that reason on the board, then that should be our reason for living too. If that was his reason for coming, to seek and save. And we're his disciples. That should be our reason for living too. So we continue to learn the word, you know, so that we're, um, we're mature, so we understand certain things. We continue to grow. But even all that growth and everything is for the benefit of the ministry, which is out there, not in here, which is seeking and saving the lost. Right? All that growth, all the studying you might do, all the reading you might do, all the praying you might do, It's for the divine purpose, the great call, and the great commission, which is following in his footsteps, spreading the good news about salvation. So as we've been learning, the good news of the gospel also never changes. Our conversation on the gospel might change depending on the context we're in, depending on where we are, who we're speaking to even, what type of person, what type of background they have. Your conversation on the gospel might change, but the simplicity and purity of the gospel never changes. And if you stick with the Word of God, you know it in your soul. Over the last year and a half, it's become embedded in your soul. And you know it. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Our job is to go out and share, right, in love. Have the right conversation, but the gospel, you know it. It's simple and pure, and it never changes. So here's some context we saw on Sunday morning about Jesus' ministry. He was sent to the Jews first. He came to seek and to save. We know that very clearly. He addressed his audience in language they would understand, and that would resonate with them. And he trained his successors, the apostles, to do the same. And we've been noting, when Jewish rejection of Jesus came to a head, Jesus changed his teaching style to parables. But again, the gospel didn't change. Just his teaching style changed. 
So we're going to learn about a lot of that as we get into the parables, I'm sure. The gospel is right within many of the parables. But it never changes. So, again, the gospel itself did not change just Jesus' teaching style. And even that's an example for us. There's a right time to approach somebody differently than we have in the past. So your approach can change, can change uh, your conversation can change, but the gospel itself never does. So we've got to be careful not to fall into the trap of some theologians that overcomplicate the word of God and add gospels, make more than one gospel when there's only Jesus' gospel. We need to, on the board, stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. The presentation of the gospel will change due to context, but there's only one gospel, and it came from the very source of the good news, Jesus himself. We need to look no further, right? We need to read his words as the author and perfecter of our faith. So on Sunday, we pulled some wonderful principles from Acts chapter 4 as the apostles continue on carrying the Lord's torch and sharing his gospel. Go again to Acts 4 verse 8, and let's see some of these principles again. And allow these examples that the apostles experienced, allow these things to encourage you and to, you know, teach you and motivate you even. Acts 4, 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. You see how boldly they gave all the glory to God? How they made it crystal clear that it wasn't their own abilities that healed this man? So let it be clear, they basically say, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which, the, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So we talked about on Sunday how the apostles, they may have been uneducated and untrained by the Pharisees' standards, but they were clearly well-trained in what really matters, and that is the gospel. That's why they're so confident. They weren't educated, they weren't good talkers, but they were bold, and they were confident because they were well-educated in the gospel. And that's what kind of blew the Pharisees away. So many of us should relate to that because this world sees us as untrained in their ways. Right? If you go around the world, if you, you know, I mean, we're all living in the world here. The more you get out of the world's ways, the more you get into the Word, the more you decide to live by Christ's call on your life and Christ's standards, 
the less intelligent you are in the world's ways, the, even the less aware you are of some of the things going on in the world, where other people will even scoff at you and be like, what do you mean you don't know that? Or what do you mean you don't watch the news? What do you mean you don't know what's going on? Aren't you worried about this and that? And, and therefore, they, they will look down at, at you and be like, this person, you know, they're oblivious or they're stupid or they're this or they're that. But you're well-trained in the gospel. And they're going to thank you for it one day, hopefully. But you're well-trained in the gospel. So you might appear uneducated and untrained and like someone that is aloof or, or even ignorant. So what? Right? We look like the fool for God, but they don't realize we're well-trained and we actually are going to hopefully be part of their saving grace at some point. So we should relate to that, what the apostles went through right here in Acts chapter 4. And we should be confident because we are well-trained in the, in the gospel. So on the board, regarding uneducated and untrained, this was human viewpoint. For these men were obviously much better trained than anyone who judged them. What confounded the Jewish leaders was that the apostles' message was simple, yet bold. And that was an antithesis to their own message. And as Pastor mentioned Sunday, this unnerved them to the core, just like a believer today, whose confidence and conviction unnerves arrogant religious people, all right, and even unbelievers. It unnerves them because they, they don't know why you have nothing in the appearance, you have nothing, but you seem to, like, you act like you have everything. You have nothing in your own life by world standards that should give you confidence, yet you have more confidence than them and more, you know, peace, boldness in your message. And that's the light of Christ shining through you, right? And that's what draws them. That's what draws them. So, again, this will unnerve people. Sometimes people will attack you and react like religious people often do, but that's okay. You just keep letting the light shine and you sit back and relax because you have been well-trained in the gospel. And the other thing is the apostles lived the gospel. They, they were out there. They obeyed the Great Commission, right? When Jesus said, go out, they went out. They went out to the people. They reached out to the people. They were spreading his message and also his love, actively speaking. They lived the gospel. They were going out healing people, reaching out in love, and revealing Jesus' message in their actions, just like Jesus showed them. That came out a lot on Sunday. Jesus showed them how to live it. Jesus taught them through experience. There's no greater teacher than experience. You can have all the book knowledge in the world, and then you come into this circumstance face-to-face, -face and you don't know what to do. When the answer probably is pretty simple. But we learn so much by doing things. And that's why obedience is so important. Because we, when we obey the word, right, by faith, many times when you obey, it's not because you think you're ready. You're obeying because God told you to do it, so by faith you go forward in something. And then God teaches you as you go. And you stumble, you fall, you get up. You know, God sometimes give you, gives you victories in that area, but there's this incredible 
learning process going on that we miss out on if we stay holed up in our homes, you know, if we, you know, shelter ourselves, you know, just to stay safe. God has meant our life in Christ to be an adventure, really. And uh, the only way we're going to seek and save the lost is to go out and meet the lost, right? So, true religion is not what the Pharisees had. They had false religion. They had religion by another name, you know, like Pastor's book is titled. That is religion by the way the world looks at it. True religion is revealed by its fruit. True religion from God has good fruit because it can't not. It's of God. It's true worship. It's obedience. It's humility. And it's living in love. So we talked about on Sunday religion today on the board. Pure and undefiled religion, as stated in James 1.27, has always been offensive to false religion. It's too simple, too gracious, too loving for those trying to cling to the throes of creature credit. Man scales instead of God's. They, they don't like it because they, they're going to lose something if they go your way. They're going to lose some credit. They're going to lose some um, credibility with friends, with their, maybe their religion, their church. False religion proposes that self-righteousness bear some mass on God's scales. And it's terribly offended when it doesn't. And that's why it attacks out of fear. Religion will often attack the true believer because it doesn't want to lose what it's got. It doesn't want to deny self, you know, and actually turn to Christ fully because you lose what you think is stability or security. On the board again, Proverbs 16:11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. And that should take all the weight off of you and me to know that it doesn't depend upon us. He gives us righteousness by grace through faith. He puts the weights on the scales. He lets what we do what good deeds we do in His power be added to the scales. He does it all. And that should make us very free and relaxed. Thank God it's out of our control. And all He wants from us is faith. So here's another picture of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, as also seen in the lives of the apostles. Turn again to James 1.27. As you read this verse, think about simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And think about the lifestyles of the apostles. Walking around everywhere in the book of Acts, reaching out to strangers, right? Not caring how they look in front of people, even the religious powerful people. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
There's something pretty pure and simple about that passage. Guess what? Even a child can do it. Hmm. Go figure. Even Christians like to complicate the Lord's calling on their lives so that they can elevate themselves above others. This verse is actually part of seeking and saving the lost, if you look at it. Again, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is a picture of seeking and saving the lost. Yet some will intellectualize verses like this away to their own harm. But as we heard on Sunday, where's your heart at? Where's your heart at? It doesn't mean everybody has to do it this exact way in that verse, but where's your heart at? Is it with people and their needs, or is it with your own needs? Is your heart generally selfless, or is it generally selfish? No one's going to be perfect. We're all on that scale somewhere in between. But as we grow, as God gives us more righteousness, even as we grow, He imparts righteousness to us so that we can bring Him maximum glory in this life. It's all a heart issue again. Is this what's on your mind or what's on your heart? Just think about the heart of Christ. And all the thousands upon thousands of people he reached out to and healed. I mean, this, this really is fun to think about if you just stop and ponder how many thousands of people, and there were thousands. I, I don't know how many it could be. I mean, it could be tens of thousands. I don't know. I have no idea. But think about that possibility that it could be tens of thousands of people Jesus healed in a three-year period. How many passages say Jesus went there and he healed them all? And remember, 5,000 were following him at a time. Okay, not everyone had an illness, I'm sure, but 5,000 here, 4,000 here. I mean, even Peter, they converted 3,000 one day to Christ. But there were a lot of people who had needs, and that's the beauty of health issues, is you realize you have a need, you realize you need God's help, and you come to God. Who were the ones following him? Who were the ones that came to him? The ones that realized how weak they were, often because of health issues. And so it was actually to their benefit, ultimately. And Jesus healed them all. Thousands upon thousands, he reached out to and healed. That is a picture of his heart. That is a picture of his heart, just like James 1.27 is. So if we just read and obey God's word without dancing around and doing spiritual gymnastics with it, we're going to be set free because we're going to live in it. We're just going to read it with the faith of a child and obey and go out and do what he says, just like a child would obey his father. We're bringing glory to God as we spread the gospel. That's why we're here. And we saw on Sunday some wonderful perspective from Pastor J. Vernon McGee on the board <clears throat> uh, regarding James 1.27. He said, Christians should be getting out where the people are. I feel there is a grave danger of having a religion of the sanctuary, but not a religion of the street. 
Going on, he said, we need a religion of the street also. We should be in contact with the world in a personal way with tenderness and kindness and helpfulness. People in the world love to think and say they have these qualities on the board. They love to say, oh yeah, I'm tender, I'm kind, I'm helpful. But they don't actually do it, most of them. That fair statement? I mean, most people don't actually do it. They might do it for someone they love, right? Or if someone guilts them enough or pressures them enough or calls them enough, but they don't really reach out to the world in a personal way, as McGee is saying. Everyone likes to think they have these qualities and boast in them, but nobody likes to live in them. And that's where humility and obedience comes in. So this is clearly something the Spirit's been saying to our church over the last year. There are so many people out there that are hurting. And when you think about it too much, it, it actually you know, will make you weep. There are so many people out there, even in our own country, that are hurting, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever it is, there are a lot of people suffering. And those are the ones that we're called to. Like we just said a minute ago, those are the ones that, that, that followed Jesus because they needed healing. They realized and admitted they needed his healing. So we're called to those folks out there to show them a love that they've never seen their entire lives, the love of Christ. They don't know it yet, but they've never seen his kind of love before in their entire lives. And it's our opportunity to reach out. McGee also said on the board, there are a lot of people out yonder who want that personal contact. I believe they crave it, even though they don't know it. They crave this personal contact, especially in this world full of isolationism, where technology has pulled us apart as families instead of staying tightly knit and all that. People out there want personal contact. My friend, you can bring a Christian contact to these people with sweetness and love and consideration and kindness. You can. You have that. You're gaining more of that through the Word and the Spirit every day. And to them, or to people in this world, it's totally foreign. Totally foreign. That's the benefit of going out to, to reaching out to the homeless people and such is you see that this type of love, this type of caring, kindness even, just simple kindnesses, is foreign in this world right now. Some people you will meet have never been loved or encouraged or shown compassion. And you might find that hard to believe. Like That sounds kind of like an overstatement, right? Not some of the people that are homeless, not some of the people that are in prison, not some of the people that grew up abused and never had anybody show them love or encouragement. You know, there's a young man that um, Michael met. His name is Rex, and uh, you can keep him in prayer too. He's still having a hard time, but he's a homeless young man in his 20s and uh, seems to have a good heart, but he grew up with a tough life and everything and, you know, kind of non-existent love in his family. And 
saying the phrase, I'm proud of you, to him for something he did, right? He said he'd never heard anybody say that to him before in his life. You, like, we don't think it exists because we're in our little bubbles, or maybe we're blessed with a decent family or, or good friends or this wonderful church and church family. But this exists out there all the time, that people don't care about other people, certain people. So we have an opportunity, folks. I mean, we have an opportunity. We have the light and people in the darkness. If you knew a bunch of people in the woods in the darkness over there, stubbing their toe all day and bumping their head on trees all day, wouldn't you go over there with the light and shine it? That's, that's the stark reality that we have the light and they are, they're blind. They're lost. You like that one, Andrea, huh? They're, they're blind. They're, they're that blind, though. They're that confused. They're that lost. They're that sad. They're that whatever. And they, you and I have this opportunity to pass on this encouragement that the apostles took from Jesus, and we're getting encouraged now by the apostles. But look on the board. You and I have been granted the privilege and opportunity to bring life-changing truth to others. Isn't that true? I mean, who, who are you? Who am I that we have this opportunity? Who are we that we even know the truth? And we do. So what are you going to do with it? Don't think you can't do this. You have the seed of the true gospel now to sow, as well as the love of Christ. And the smallest thing can make the biggest difference in the lost, the lives of the lost. Smallest thing. I'm proud of you. Huh. Wow. Someone's thrown back and goes into tears because you said, I'm proud of you. But that's the kind of power we have with the love of Christ, which is totally foreign to them. And so we, we follow the apostles' example. And just let God work through us. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Go here, go there, go there, go where he directs you. Say what you think he wants you to say and move on if, you, if it's time to move on. But he's going to make you say wonderful things. He's even going to make you do wonderful things. And it's not dependent upon your ability. So we have the apostles' example to follow in this. Because they were just simple sinners just like ourselves. Go out and touch people and experience the joy the apostles got to experience. So go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Before we continue, here's the point on the board from Sunday. What's the problem? Boldness in uneducated men unnerves the self-righteous because it debilitates the very basis of their self-esteem. A person whose self-esteem is tied to Christ is infinitely more powerful than one whose self-esteem is tied to self. Humility leaves arrogance speechless. Look at Acts 4.14. 
And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And this was a key point from Sunday on the board. What we have seen and heard. Notice that the apostles' confidence pivoted on their experiences. Not just what Jesus taught them verbally, but what he taught them through his example. And I added this on um, from Sunday morning because Pastor said this in the bowl, but it it wasn't on the screen. So I wanted to make sure you saw this for our sake. Like the apostles, so much of our training must be experienced for it to become something of substance. So much of our training must be experienced for it to become something of substance. Hebrews 11.1 says faith is a substance of things not seen. Yeah, when it's lived. And the apostles never would have been this this confident if they only sat down at tables and let Jesus teach them every day. Because their confidence was in what? In verse 20, what we have seen and heard. So it was the actual experience and learning by doing, by stepping out in faith, that gave them this tremendous confidence in only three years so that they could carry the Lord's torch, even though he was gone. Think of the confidence and courage they had to stand up to these Pharisees, folks. These were like intimidating, powerful men. It's like going before the governor of the state. You know, it's like going before someone rich and famous and maybe who runs businesses that control your city. And here you are, this peasant, standing up for the truth in front of them with great confidence. And again on the board, like the apostles, so much of our training must be experienced for it to become something of substance. Think of water as a simple analogy. Water is simple, pure H2O, as most of you know. Without the right mix of hydrogen and oxygen, you just have gases. We might say you just have a bunch of hot air. It's a good analogy, spiritually even. But with the right mix of hydrogen and oxygen, you have water all of a sudden. The water of life. And we need the right mix of learning the word and living the word. Because faith is designed to be lived out. Faith is designed to step forward without seeing. Not just to learn about stepping forward, but actually stepping forward. We need the right mix of learning the word and living the word to be able to give others the water of life and receive the joy that the apostles got to share in by seeing lives changed by giving light in the darkness so they won't stub their toe again and again. 
That's why a Christian can't rely on church teachings as the only part of this spiritual life. That's really only half the equation. Faith is meant to be lived, and faith must be tested for it to grow and sprout fruit, whether you like it or not. But you will like it if you just step out. You will like it. You'll see God use you in ways you never thought you could be used. Whatever your gift is, it's different for everybody. But step out in faith and see, watch what he does through you, even though you are unable, unworthy, etc. That's what God does. It's his specialty. So on the board, Jesus said, follow me. There was much more to Jesus' words than simply a physical act. He was calling his apostles, and he has, with each of us even, to follow his example. He then sent these men out so that others could follow their example in Christ. And so on throughout human history for 2,000 years. Following is an experience. And that's what Jesus asked us to do. And when you follow Jesus, not only learn from him, from his words, but you also follow him, there's an inevitable overflow which demands a response. Let me just say that again. Just think about this. If you choose to follow Jesus, not just learn about him and the facts about him, if you choose to follow Jesus, there is an inevitable overflow which demands a response. So I want you right now just to picture yourself literally following Jesus down the road 2,000 years ago in Judea. On this dirt road, you are following him with the apostles, okay? As you approach an area filled with people, they start coming up to him. And because you're following right behind him, some of the people come up to you. That's the inevitable overflow of following Christ. If you're really going to follow him, people are going to end up coming to you. But only because you're first following. You're going out, right? And then God's going to bring certain people to you. Even though the Lord's out in front, he's always out in front of us. But he's going to bring certain people to you that are meant to meet you, that are meant to bump into you. And following Jesus demands a response then. If you choose to do the things he did, you will have the chance to respond with faith. Or not. Or respond with love. Or not. But if you're humble, doing what he commands, you will respond with faith and love to people that he's given you or that he's brought in your path. But when you follow Jesus, if you choose to follow him, there's this inevitable overflow that's going to demand a response. Are you going to step out by faith or are you going to back away again? Are you going to love them unconditionally? Um, are you going to show them love, not just say you love them? Or are you going to back away again? And, and we're going to fail at times, but if you're humble, he's going to allow you to participate in these wonderful things and actually allow you to help change people's lives. So I only got a couple minutes left here. <clears throat> we'll round out here uh, back where we started kind of on this subject. Unbelievers and even religious people Refuse to follow Jesus. Okay, You and I may choose to follow him, but 
Many don't. They just simply refuse. They want to follow their own way. They don't want to give up their own way, even though it's a house of cards. And even though the Holy Spirit is convicting them of the truth about Jesus Christ, they say no. So think about this for a minute as we close. Again, even though the Holy Spirit is convicting them of the truth about Jesus Christ, they say no. They are rejecting His voice in their conscience. Just think about that. They are literally rejecting the Spirit's voice speaking to them in their conscience. And they choose to say no. That's actually what's going on in people's souls. That's what went on in your soul, but you chose to say yes at some point to the conviction. It's a supernatural thing. Have you ever known something to be true and your conscience was convicting you, but you still said no because of arrogance or selfishness? Come on. I have. (laughs) And I chose to ignore the truth about a matter because it wasn't convenient for me or I was being selfish or whatever. You know when your conscience is telling you the right thing to do, and even that is from God, and you, you can choose to say no. Ignore it. You know? Rationalize it. Well, that's what people do when they reject Christ. The conscience, God is speaking to them directly in their conscience, and they will choose to say no. So back to Matthew twelve thirty one as we close. Let's just read this passage again because this is the pivotal statement that we've been on and it's a pivotal time in Jesus' teaching ministry where he's about to switch from propositional teaching of the gospel, clear and straightforward, to parables. And you guys have said no for the last time. And I know now your hearts are hard because you keep saying no. You're ignoring my spirit who's convicting you. Matthew 12, 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So this was a turning point on the board. Blasphemy against the Spirit. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was, knowing he was sent from their God. John eleven forty eight 48, Acts 4, 16. Which means they'd have to call the Spirit who convicted them of who he was, a liar. Ultimately, it was clear in their conscience, the Spirit was telling them, it is him, accept him, but I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose the freedom we have in Rome. I want a king now to rescue us. So I can't, I'm not going, I'm not willing in my own heart to admit it's him, even though I know it, because you've told me. But I'm not willing to give this up. And that's where we get that whole salvation thing, right? Turning from sin to righteousness, turning away from self and your own schemes and righteousness even to God's righteousness, to God's salvation. But they say no and no and no to the Spirit, which that cannot be forgiven ultimately because God is allowing them the free will. So I guess we'll close with this point on the board even about blasphemy of the Spirit today. Similarly, when an unbeliever says to an evangelist's face, you're a liar, it is forgiven them. 
But if that evangelist just sowed the good seed, as in Matthew 13, 3 through 4, the unbeliever is now accountable to God for rejecting his spirit, a.k.a. the spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He's not rejecting you. He's rejecting the Holy Spirit, convicting his conscience. So that should give us hope. And we can go out and sow seed. We can go out and sow seed without fear, without uh, feeling that the burden is on us to convince people. Our job is to go out there and elicit a heart response. All right, I'm going to close with this point, one more point in the board. Sowing seed, just like the apostles sowed seed. Facts about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, whether believed or not, are not the issue in salvation, strictly speaking. The issue is a person's heart response to the gospel, which includes these facts, as a result of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. I hope, to all of you who have been listening to the teaching over the last year and a half, I hope this makes sense to you. I hope you see the difference between uh, assenting to some facts about Jesus versus a heart response to the gospel, an accounting in your own soul, an acceptance, you know. Um, There's different ways to say it, but here's the question I'll close with. Will the person's heart choose to follow their God-convicted conscience? That's what's happening at the moment of salvation when someone's confronted with the truth from the Spirit. Will that person in their heart choose to follow their God-convicted conscience or not? They can know all the facts. They can recite all the facts about what they hear about Jesus. Will their heart choose to follow their God-convicted conscience? So there's something to think about as we go, and we'll continue on Thursday Thursday evening. Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much again for your word and your conviction. And we thank you so much for our helper, your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the truth, Father, that sets us free. And we thank you for the opportunity to sow seed, just like the apostles did in obedience. We know that there's nothing special needed about us, but that we can just throw out the seed following your great commission and watch you go to work and watch you convict some and watch some walk away. But, Father, we thank you for the privilege of bringing your light to the world. Father, give us courage and faith to go forward in your plan for our lives. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.